This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, April 1st, 2023 on 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. I'm Kyle Kellams. With me on the phone from his office in Fort Smith is Michael Tilley with Talk Business and Politics. Michael, thanks for coming back. Hey, as, as always, I'm glad to be back and pleasantly surprised to keep asking you back. Well, we're going to keep asking you back. We're going to talk water and air today. Let's start with water, as in the sort of water that comes out of the tap at your home. A water study has been approved by Fort Smith Board of Directors. What do we know? Well, we know they've been needing to do this for a while, partially because we're under this federal consent decree, which just by way of reminder, the U.S. Department of um, Justice and the environmental, the EPA uh, told Fort Smith, because Fort Smith would not fix its water and sewer system for long, would not adequately fix it, I should say, that they finally put them under what's called a federal consent decree where the feds are essentially telling them here the fixes you have to make and you have to make them in a certain time frame. And that has resulted already in some, some significant water and sewer rate increases for city residents. That also comes with the need for a water rate study. The problem with that that we learned, I learned about a couple of years ago was that there was a law on the books in Arkansas that said any city conducted a water rate study, and if the water rate study came back and said, you have to raise, your your cost of operation is X, and you're only collecting a part of X, you've got to raise your rates to meet X. So it's actually a good law. If you're if you're an Arkansan looking for a good law that's been passed, <laughs> there's one, because it makes, in fact, if this law had been on the books maybe 50, 60 years ago, Fort Smith wouldn't be in the trouble uh-huh. it is now. It would have had to raise rates. So what I guess that law does is it, it makes reluctant, you know, elected officials, whatever, have to keep up with the cost of the infrastructure. Yeah, but it but they still have to conduct a water rate study. You can't so but it, once you conduct that, if the rate com- if the study comes back and says you've got to raise rates thirty percent, you gotta raise them thirty percent. There's no you know, you don't get to phase it in or whatever. And so Ooh. since they had already raised rates significantly in the last several years to meet some of the consent decree work, they were hesitant to do this. Fortunately, in this recent legislative session, there was law passed, it's now Act 545, that exempts any city city that is under a consent decree or some kind of judgment for remediation. It exempts them from having to bite off all of that at once. So with that protection in place, the city is now conducting this. It'll be about a $50,000 study uh, Burns and McDonald, a very highly respected engineering firm, uh, is conducting the study. Should be uh, wrapped up in about nine months. Lance McAvoy is director of utilities. One of the interesting things about this study that I don't think a lot of folks know, and I have to remind myself from time to time, is that contract water users, and, and which are like the city of Van Buren and other folks outside of Fort Smith who buy water from Fort Smith, they pay less for that water. Uh, than some uh, residential customers do. For example, contract water users pay $1.80 per the water unit, and lowest rate for residential customers is uh, $2.24. So hopefully the study will provide the city some ability to try to you know, justify going back to some of these water rate users, these large contract users uh, outside of the city and say, look, we're going to need a little bit more money from you guys for the water. So we have a water rate study. We'll see what they come back, and um, I I suspect it will not be. Well, let me put it another way, Cal. I I will be surprised 
if they come back and it's just a small number that the the water rate has to be increased, I I, I think it's not going to be a it's not going to be a fun number. Mm. Uh, numbers and water. Let's stay on that. Thirty one percent gain in inbound traffic going up the Arkansas River. More than three million tons in the first quarter of twenty twenty three. This is a sign that the economy remains at least to some degree strong. Yes, well, it does. I mean, some of because a lot of the products um, on the river, and I'll talk about this just in a second, are kind of those fundamental underliers of the economy. We've talked about that before: sand, gravel, rock, chemical fertilizers, iron, steel, wheat, um, you know, ag products. So they had a pretty robust quarter, and for the first three months of the year, tonnage is a little over three million tons, and that was up almost fourteen percent compared with the same period in twenty twenty two. And let's keep in mind, 2022 is a pretty healthy year. Also, uh, tonnage was up uh, 3% last year. So you're comparing that first quarter against some pretty good comparisons even in the previous year. But yeah, inbound shipments, which is kind of a good sign. You've got product coming into the river system. Uh, was up 31%. Outbound shipments uh, were up 9.4%. Internal shipments, however, that's you know, shipments shipped between ports on the river. And the river is this waterway is 445 miles. It's from Tulsa down to where it connects to the Mississippi River. But those inbound shipments were down 3%. But good, healthy numbers overall. Talked to Marty Shell. He operates the Port of Fort Smith and the Port of Van Buren. He said the first quarter was busy, seeing a little bit of a slowdown on grain feed and some of the ag side, but he thinks that'll rebound in the fourth quarter later this year. And he talks about his take is that it's to what you referred to, that the uptick in tonnage still reflects, you know, consumer is still confident and is still spending despite, you know, inflation, despite this alleged recession that's supposed to hit and despite you know, higher interest rates. Well, let's move to the air and employments at the uh, airport in Fort Smith for the first three months of the year up. Not a surprise, considering we're still coming kind of out of the pandemic, although they were down a bit in March because there were fewer departures. Yeah, that's that's true. So, in plain as the airport, again, it's another measure of the economy because um, it's it's a lot of business traffic coming in and out of the airport. And the Fort Smith Regional Airport, not near as active, obviously, as XNA, but um, had twelve thousand, a little over twelve thousand five hundred employments, up three point three percent compared to the same period in March in uh, twenty twenty two. Yeah, March employments were down big time. They were down twenty one percent. I talked to Airport Director Michael Griffin. He said part of the reason for that is that American Airlines, which is the only carrier out of Fort Smith, in fact, they're still working to try to recruit Delta back and recruit some other airlines, but they reduced their uh, departures from three a day to two a day. He said Americans told them that those flights will come back to three a day uh, during the summer, but um, that that will definitely put a kink uh, in the numbers, although, and we didn't put this in the story, but uh, American is using larger um uh, plane now coming to Fort Smith. So the capacity is not, you know, one plane capacity or one flight capacity loss. There's still some capacity loss, but with the larger planes, it's not like you're losing one whole flight in terms of the number of seats available. So that's some good news. But hopefully this will continue as with everything else. You know, their flights, their total employments were growing. They've been growing. They've been on a, like a five, six-year growth spurt hit over 95,000 in 2019. And of course, we all know what happened in 2020. Employment's dropped down to 39,000, and they're just slowly rebuilding now. All right. And finally, it's been a 
few weeks since we got the confirmation that uh, Fort Smith will be home for a new pilot training center. Anything developed in the past few weeks about that? Well, not, nothing major, but just, you know, it's something we're going to keep tabs on because, as I've been told, it's it's one thing to get the Air Force nod that they're going to bring that pilot training center to Fort Smith, Devonfield Field, bringing, you know, a thousand or more people. It's going to have a huge economic impact. But then some of the people I've talked to that are on the Air Force side and on the politics side and on the community side, then you got to get it done. Then the government and the military has got to find the fund to make it happen. A lot of things now have to fall into place to get it up and running. And so we're keeping tabs on that. And one of the one of those things was that um, U.S. Senator John Bozeman, during the Defense Subcommittee meeting uh, this week, is on Tuesday, had a chance to talk to the um, Air Force Secretary, Charles Brown. And he said he gave a commitment to the Senator Bozeman. They're working to get it up to speed. And he used the word, he said, we've Quote, we've done some really deep work internal to align things, as he said, to make sure they get that capability up and running on time at Ebbing. So uh, remember, this is going to bring in, uh, you know, seeing pilots from Singapore, from Poland, then Germany, Switzerland. So it's going to be a, it's going to be a nice feather in the Air Force's cap and and. And it just so happens to be here in Fort Smith. We will follow along. You can follow along with all of these stories at talkbusiness.net. Michael, thank you for your time. Let's do it again next Friday. You're welcome, and I look forward to it. Botanical Garden of the Ozarks celebrates Earth Day 2023 this Friday, April 21st, from 3 to 6 p.m. Events will include giveaways, interactive activities, live music, a magic show, and more for the whole family. Guests are also welcome to bring a picnic. Registration and information at bgozarks.org slash events. Or get your ticket at the gate. Opera in the Ozarks kicks off its Spring Alumni Recital Concert Series at Thaden School in Bentonville Sunday, April 23rd with an afternoon of arias and art songs featuring internationally recognized soprano Katrina Thurman and baritone Pal Brum, accompanied by pianist Hyun Kim. Tickets available at opera.org. Ahead this hour, the Fort Smith Symphony seeks inspiration from a few miles west for the final concert of the season. Saturday's concert will salute the compositions of Lewis Ballard, an Oklahoma native. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he was one of the last fluent speakers of Quapaw. So when he passed, um, that passed with him. You know, I don't speak the language. We'll learn more about Lewis Ballard and hear symphony guest artist Carl Eric Ettinger play a sample at the Mary Baker Rumsey Piano. That's later on today's Ozarks at Large. On the first episode of the newest podcast from KUAF and the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, The Beloved Community, University of Arkansas Chancellor Dr. Charles Robinson speaks with host Lindsay Leverett about his work at the University of Arkansas and about his commitment to the land-grant mission of the University of Arkansas to help create a better future for individuals and society as a whole. Thinking about how, again, in everything that we do, what those who are least among us in terms of their resources, what impact it would have on them, I think that is in line with Dr. King and his dream and, and, and the responsibility we have as campus leaders to build this beloved community. How many people does it take for us to Listen and subscribe to the Beloved Community Podcast for free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. By the power vested in me as chairman of the University of Arkansas Board of Trustees, 
I hereby bestow upon Dr. Charles Robinson the title of Chancellor, University of Arkansas Federal. Morrill Harriman, the president of the University of Arkansas Board of Trustees, officially conferred Dr. Charles Robinson as the seventh chancellor at the U of A yesterday. The investiture ceremony in the Faulkner Performing Arts Center included remarks from the president of the university system, Donald Bobbitt, who says this is a pivotal moment in university history. There is much to be proud about from a recent past, but also a great deal of potential for this institution to make further strides as the state's leading public research university. Into this moment steps Dr. Charles Robinson, who so capably led the university as interim chancellor before earning a permanent position just five months ago. Robinson was named interim chancellor in August 2021. He thanked the campus community for supporting him both during the interim period and since he was officially selected as chancellor late last year. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders says she looks forward to working hand-in-hand with the new chancellor. He's pioneered new ways to make Fayetteville accessible for low-income, first-generation Arkansans. He led the construction of a new residence hall, an expansion to the Pat Walker Health Center, and the planning for this school's new Student Success Center. And he did all of that at the same time. He was able to write several books and mentor countless students. Chancellor Robinson began his career at the University of Arkansas as a member of the faculty in the Department of History. He says his commitment to the school is deep and continues to grow. Every single day, I feel the energy and the power and the connection that I've always wanted to build with this campus. And again, I'm so grateful. The new chancellor says his role has shifted from, as a history professor, understanding and conveying the meaning of important moments to intentionally creating those moments. The University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences will use a $15 million grant to study the best mechanisms for postpartum follow-up with new mothers. The money, awarded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, will be used over a five-year period. According to the CDC, more than 1,200 women died of maternal causes in the United States in 2021. That was a rise of about 350 such deaths compared to the year before. For the first time, the Arkansas Department of Finance and Administration has used information from driver's license registrations to track migration patterns. Department spokesperson Scott Harden says Arkansas requires new residents to transfer to a state license. Using that information, the department tracked from where new residents were migrating. The department says most of the new residents coming to Arkansas were from Texas and California. Harden said Texas being at the top of the list wasn't a surprise, but seeing California caught his attention. He said workers maximize their spending power by working remotely for companies in states like California, but moving to states like Arkansas with a lower cost of living. Whatever that salary is, it's going to go as far as it is in California. But you bring that same salary to Arkansas and you're looking at, well, I can have a a one bedroom apartment in, in Los Angeles and be based out of L.A. for the rest of my life, or I can move to Arkansas, uh, have a, a significantly larger space, a home, property, a great view. Harden says going forward, the state wants to track and compile data each year to document migration patterns. Census data shows Arkansas's population grew by 3.3 percent from 2010 to 2020. The Fayetteville School District will host a reception for the public to meet the new superintendent, Dr. John Mulford. 
The reception will be at the Fayetteville Public Library Monday from 4 to 6. Hank Green, the author of the best-selling book, An Absolutely Remarkable Thing, and a creator or co-creator of several Crash Course YouTube series, will speak on the University of Arkansas campus May 3rd. The event, presented by the University of Arkansas's Distinguished Lecture Series, scheduled for that Wednesday night at 7 in Bud Walton Arena. The moderated question and answer session will be free and open to the public. The fifth-ranked Arkansas Razorback baseball team will try to even their series with Georgia tonight after losing last night 6-5 in Athens. And the number 12 softball team starts a three-game series at number 20 Kentucky tonight. And the Northwest Arkansas Naturals are back at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale tonight for another game against Amarillo. The Nats dropped a 3-2 extra inning game last night. Current homestand will last through Sunday afternoon. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Diego Rivera's America, the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years. It features his works, digital projections of his murals, and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. On view now through July 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. Theater Squared presents Chicken and Biscuits, a dysfunctional family comedy about rival sisters trying to bury their father without killing each other first. When a family secret is revealed at the church altar, things go from bad to bonkers. On stage through May 14th, 777-7477 or theater2.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. The Fort Smith Symphony concert season concludes tomorrow night with Native American Legends. It's a concert tribute to Lewis Ballard. Ballard was born in Devil's Promenade near Miami, Oklahoma in 1932 and established himself as a premier American composer of classical music. The program will also be performed Sunday and Monday by the Fort Smith Symphony and recorded by Noxos Records for an international release sometime next year. Yesterday, John Jetter, the composer and music director of the symphony, came to the Furman Garner Performance Studio, along with Carl Eric Ettinger, a pianist and leading scholar regarding Ballard's compositions, and Simone Ballard, the composer's granddaughter. John Jetter says the symphony will perform four works that are receiving a sort of rediscovery. We do that in concert. And then the next two days, we'll be recording those for Noxos Records for release, hopefully within the next uh, 12, 10 to 12 months. So we're really excited about it. As you know, it's our, it's our MO from uh, the William Grant Still recordings and Florence Price. And this is a, a, a logical continuation. He's a towering figure, not just as a composer, but as a, as a person, as a, as a human being. For those who are uninitiated or maybe haven't heard much about Lewis Ballard. What can you tell us? Yeah, so um, he was my grandfather. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he was a really interesting, you know, human being, as you say. Um, you know, he was born in a very, very different time for, you know, Native Americans and minorities. And he did go to an Indian boarding school. Um, so that was, you know, just a very different phase last century. But, you know, he overcame a lot. He's definitely just a very inspiring story about overcoming, you know, setbacks, um, discrimination, and he really found his final community in Santa Fe, New Mexico as well, although he always stayed connected to Oklahoma and to his tribe and family. Um, but yeah, he really became sort of an international representation of Native Americans in the fine arts. And uh, he's also one of the first, and as far as I know, one of the only Native American composers to have a full concert um, performed and dedicated to him in Germany at Beethoven Halle. So 
Yeah, uh, it's shaped, you know, my life as well. I've lived abroad in Amsterdam and, um, you know, I'm still <laughs> one of the only Native Americans that some of my European friends know. And uh, yeah, it's, we sort of naturally gravitate towards these, um, these bigger cultural roles. But yeah, I, I'm ecstatic that this concert is happening. It's very great to be back in Arkansas. Um, I live in New Orleans, so it's just a wonderful, you know, at-home feeling in the South, for sure. You mentioned that he went to an Indian boarding school. Of course, <clears throat> there were attempts by those who ran the school, including the United States government, to eradicate, to erase culture and heritage. Yes, and, um, you know, unfortunately, he was one of the last fluent speakers of Quapaw. So when he passed, um, that passed with him. You know, I don't speak the language. But there have been efforts made to preserve Quapaw language by the tribe, and also my other tribe, the Osage, are making efforts. So, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not a total loss, but <laughs> it's something that, you know, we do need to be aware of in our history and make steps to correct it right now. This weekend has not just both the concert to hear his music live, but then the recording yeah. that will then be available worldwide. Yeah, that's really going to be special and just looking forward to seeing how that unfolds. And um, yeah, very grateful. <laughs> Before we started this conversation, you were at the Steinway there yeah. preparing for a piece. What can you tell us about it? Uh, that's one of his one of his earlier pieces. He composed four um, American Indian piano preludes. That one is uh, Umbasca or Daylight and is uh, Quapaw language. But he really, in his music, absorbed the, he was interested in the music, the art, the dance, the literature of any tribe that he could, that he could learn about. And like a composer like Bartok, who absorbed a style and then composed uh, borrowing elements, elements from that, um, that's what that's his his that was his style what little i heard while you were at the piano sounded lively mm -hmm. complicated and right. original unique right he uh he studied with bela rocha and bela rocha was a student of arnold schoenberg so interestingly there's the 12 tone or uh, and some atonal elements to it but then he also had other, you know, other things he was drawing on from Western art music composers, uh, as well as uh, elements, rhythms, and things from traditional Native American music, uh, powwow songs, and all of that. He had all of that to draw on. How did you become familiar with his compositions? I took a course in Native American music at the University of New Mexico. Uh, the professor there was Maria Williams. And uh, she exposed me to, uh, to his music and suggested that I do my final project on him. So this was in Albuquerque, and so I made the short trip up to Santa Fe, where the composer was living. I met him in, initially in 2004, and from that point on continued uh, getting familiar with the music, collecting things, going to archives, finding anything I could uh, on the composer. What's it like for a musician, an artist, to meet with a composer that you're studying? Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't think that meeting with him was was typical. I went up there as a young student, and I had a list of questions and things, and 
he would have none of it. He had a presentation he had laid out for me. So uh, there was some interaction in terms of it, that, the first thing that I was purchasing were, were these, uh, these preludes. And he had some suggestions and changes to the score. So we talked about the music a little bit. But other than that, his biography, he had a whole presentation laid out for me, which was really wonderful, interesting, yeah. John, this whole season has been called Legends. And I know when you and I talked back I guess in the in in the fall maybe about this yeah. season you were so excited that it was called Legends and that this was the final concert. Yeah, it's been a real interesting fun uh, development and to get the music. Uh, I you know we were t you were talking about uh, the style of music. Is he's really pretty eclectic, I have to say. There are some pieces that sound very modern and then really I think most of the works that we're performing in concert they're they're definitely uh, tonal they do have their uh, edgier moments, and uh, but they're very much part of a Western symphonic tradition with these other elements of uh, a Native American music styles, language, figures, and uh, it's a really it's it's wonderful. As we've talked about in the past, doing projects like this, uh, there's something special about bringing music you know to light that's you know, people don't. You know, it's not, it's not Beethoven and Brahms, you know, it's, it's something that's, there's a lot more exploration there. So what is that like for you this weekend? You've got to get, you've got the live performance. Yeah. Then the recording. Right. So is, it's, it's, is that a different mindset for you? No, you're just performing the music. No, well, actually, um, you know, it's funny because uh, we always prepare for a concert. Uh, this time, of course, the concert's important. Of course it's important, yes. but... There's almost this, there's this bigger thing afterwards in terms of uh, the audience that we're going to potentially reach. You know, it, it will be millions of people. So uh, there's there's uh, a lot to do. It's new music, so um, it, you know that hasn't been performed in a long time. New, or I should say, that we haven't done or people haven't done. So there's there's things we have to, you know, parts that haven't been played on before. So there's. There's a lot of detective work that went on prior to, and will in rehearsal too, and there's a lot of things you can look at. Uh, conductors can look at a score all they want to, but when you're actually with a group of people, you might say, oh, this, we need to change this, this sounds good, or we need to, oh, I didn't realize that part needs to come out more, that sort of thing. John Jetter is the music director and conductor of the Fort Smith Symphony. We also talked with Simone Ballard and Carl Eric Ettinger. The concert is Saturday night at the ArcBest Performing Arts Center in Fort Smith. There will be a pre-concert lecture featuring Edinger at about 6.20, and then an after-party at the Bakery District. Before they left the Furman Gardner Performance Studio yesterday, Carl Eric Edinger performed for us the first movement of Lewis Ballard's Four American Indian Preludes, Mbaska, which is Daylight.
Carl Eric Ettinger at the Mary Baker Rumsey Steinway inside the Furman Garner Performance Studio. That was recorded yesterday. He'll perform with the Fort Smith Symphony tomorrow night. More about the Fort Smith Symphony at fortsmithsymphony.org and more about the composer Lewis Ballard at lwballard.com. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of activities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus outdoor spaces, including access to city trails. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, concludes its season Saturday, April 29th at Walton Arts Center with Evoking Folklore, performing works by Jared Tate, Manuel de Fala, and Aaron Copeland, each a storytelling of folklore, from traditional Spanish stories to Chickasaw Nation tales and classic Americana. Tickets at sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large. We cannot advance into the weekend proper before... Talking with Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, our longtime guide to weekends and beyond. Becca, how are you? I'm terrific. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you. I have been struck yet again by the amazing selection of things we have to do in Northwest Arkansas and the River Valley. And it really seems that it really starts to gear up when spring arrives. Exponentially. These are some of the most wildly diverse things you can do this weekend. Let's go. You can go see visual art in the form of quilts. And where is this? At the Benton County Fairgrounds. It is Tomorrow's Heirlooms 18, presented by Quilters United in Learning Together, who I've been reporting on since they formed in like 1980-something. Mm-hmm. And they have 340 quilts. That they'll be showing this weekend. Everything from traditional to mixed media, you know, which has beading and yo-yos and embroidery on it, to pictorial quilts, to modern quilts. If you can quilt it, they will have it. They'll also have a gift shop and 28 other vendors that will sell you everything for the art of quilting. And this is at the Benton County Fairgrounds. From 9 to 6 today, 9 to 4 tomorrow, admission $10 for adults. And you can find out more at quiltguildnwa.com. That's versus an exhibit, a performance, a mixed media interdisciplinary thing at the Roadhouse at the Momentary in Bentonville this weekend. It's called SICKER, S-I-C-C-E-R, and it's based on the word the Latin adverb sick that we use to say this word or phrase is not proper English. Right. Created by an artist named Will Rawls, it's going to include electronic sound and vocals and dance and stop-motion filmmaking. And it's all about, to quote him, a way to think more largely about Black performers and Black people, how our gestures and language are material for the media. Is this a one-time-only sort of uh, opportunity? This is 8 o'clock today, 8 o'clock tomorrow at the Roadhouse, one weekend only. Part of it, an ongoing video installation, will be up through June 4th. But this is your one chance to see the full presentation. $25 for members, $30 for the public, $10 for students. And I think that's about as far away from quilts as you can get. I think you're right. But I'm not done yet, because also it's the last weekend 
for the Picasso exhibit at the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum. And these aren't just any Picassos. No, these are ceramics from when Picasso was working with a pottery workshop in southern France. And they have 46 of these pieces, including two original ceramic works from the years between 1947 and 1971, and posters from previous exhibitions, and photo murals of Picasso at work at the pottery in southern France. And Sunday's the last day. And then stop on your way back at the Backwoods Music Festival at Mulberry Mountain. Tell me about this. It's through Sunday. It includes people like the String Cheese Incident and the Floozies, Andy Frasco in the UN, Arkansas, Keller Williams, plus workshops on yoga and massage and hoop dancing, plus the River Valley Comics are going to do some sets. All of this happens on Mulberry Mountain in Ozark. And you can still get tickets at BackwardsMusicFestival.com. Macbeth, presented by the high school students at Don Tyson School of Innovation in Springdale. Tonight and tomorrow night, set in a post-apocalyptic world. So it's Mad Mac instead of Mad Max. Gotcha. Theater teacher and playwright Kevin Cohey is behind this, so you know it will be extraordinary. 6.30 today and tomorrow, tickets are $10 at the door. University Theater is doing Songs for a New World, which is not really a play, it's a song cycle about opportunities and missed chances. And that's 7.30 today and tomorrow at 2 o'clock on Sunday at the theater on the UA campus in Fayetteville. Tickets are $20. And Fort Smith Little Theater is wrapping up a classic farce, Dilemmas with Dinner, What Happens When the Guest List for Dinner Turns Out to Be Problematic. <laughs> okay. 7.30 today and tomorrow, and tickets are $12. Theoretically, you could do big chunks of this if you move really fast. Yeah, that's it. you got to move really fast. And we'll leave it up to people whether they want to do that on the weekend or not. It's a good weekend. It is a good weekend. And if you're bored, it's your fault. Exactly. Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor of the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Never boring. Becca, we'll do this again next Friday. I'll see you then. It's the Community Spotlight Week in Review. I'm Pete Hartman. Spring events have sprung, and the Peel Compton Foundation is looking to actually increase the number of events that they present, and they're already rolling. I spoke with Lucy Patton earlier this week. Y'all are are about to host Osage Park After Dark. Now, uh, you've already kind of sold this event out, but I thought it was a very cool concept. We're really excited to celebrate Earth Day in kind of a different way and get people active and outside and learning about the wetland area that we have at Osage Park. So we're really excited to see that sell out for its first year, and we're hoping to bring it back next year as well. Spring and summer is here, as we know, and we're excited to really represent that recreation and activity-based getting outside with all of our different events. We actually have an event going on right now because it's an online pre-purchase sale for our hanging basket sale. This is an annual fundraiser. So when you purchase a hanging basket, you're really supporting our mission. So basically you can go on our website at peelcompton.org, look at through all the different seven varieties that we have and purchase a basket. If you're also interested in mountain bike riding, we have our second annual endurance race and that's at Kohler Mountain Bike Preserve. Uh, It's called Noon to Moon. We have a six-hour and a 12-hour option. Sounds crazy to some people, but we always promote that you can do a team of three people and kind of break up the race. Um, It's a lap-based race, so 
You do the most laps, you win prizes. Really excited to bring that back for the second year. Lucy Patton, Senior Marketing Manager with the Peel Compton Foundation. You can find out about all of the events planned for this spring online at peelcompton.org. Coming up May 10th, Circles NWA, Combating Poverty in Our Community, will graduate its inaugural class of its Circle Leaders, and they're looking for the community to come out and help celebrate this milestone with them. Here's Christina Williams, founder and executive director of Circles NWA. So Circles is a poverty reduction initiative that focuses on helping low-income individuals and families pursue upward mobility from poverty. And what makes Circles unique is that we flip the traditional mentorship model on its head and really focus on centering the leadership of those who have experienced poverty. And we call them our circle leaders. And so our circle leaders are matched with some volunteer allies who typically come from more upper middle, middle class backgrounds, and they commit to walking alongside each other for 18 months as the circle leader is setting goals to increase their income and build their social connections and just work towards bettering their lives. And so now we've reached this point where our first cohort has completed that 18 months and they're going to graduate and we want to celebrate all their accomplishments and invite the community into that as well. The evening of May 10th again, where will this be taking place? This will be at Genesis Church in Fayetteville. 205 Elma OK. Boulevard. And you're looking for the community to, to join y'all and celebrate, right? Yeah, we, we're so proud of this first cohort. They've accomplished so many things during their time there. We've seen people increase their income and get new jobs, become first-time homeowner, pay off their vehicle, start new certification programs, and so many other things. And we want to celebrate this. We want the community to come and celebrate this with us, as well as it's just a great time to learn about circles and kind of see what it is, what it feels like, um, because we are starting to recruit for our next group of circle leaders and allies that will start this fall. Everyone that started with us has finished this program, wow. and so I want to invite more people to become part of this community that's working to end poverty in Northwest Arkansas. Christina Williams, founder and executive director of Circles NWA. For more on that May 10th graduation event, go online at circlesnwa.org. Welcome Health Northwest Arkansas's Free Health Center is working with Canopy NWA to help provide incoming refugee immigrants with the cost of medical exams upon arrival into the U.S. Earlier this week, I had the opportunity to speak with Monica Fisher-Massey, Executive Director of Welcome Health. Well, Canopy approached us and inquired if we would be willing to provide immigration exams for their refugees, and we said yes. And since January, we started offering immigration exams to low-income refugees and immigrants who are applying for their green cards, which allows them to obtain permanent residency status. Dr. Kurt Eifling, who is a local ER physician, who is a designated civil surgeon by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to offer those immigration exams. Not just any physician can do that. Interesting. Physicians have to be designated by the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service. Hmm. And he uh, is coming to Welcome Health once a week to offer these exams, which can cost up to $400, which is a, a large expense, especially if there's a family of five or six. Often, families have to come back because perhaps they don't have all the paperwork that they need, all the immunizations, everything else that is required. And so if there are multiple visits and each visit is $400, that's a major expense. Wow. 
Monica Fisher-Massey with Welcome Health. Find out more about that program online, welcomehealthnwa.org. A quick note, the Kings River Watershed's Madison County cleanup, which we heard about last week on the Community Spotlight, that was to take place tomorrow, that has been postponed until next Saturday, April 29th. So if you were planning on meeting at the Rock House Landing at 8 a.m. sharp tomorrow, don't do that. Do that next Saturday. Some things to look forward to next week. We hear from the Trillium Salon series' Katie Henriksen as they will feature a national act paired with a local musician on Mount Sequoia soon. May is Bike Month, and we'll have Trailblazers in the studio to talk about some different events that they have planned. And we hear about the Community Cat Support Network, working to TNR, that's Trap, Neuter, Return, Community Cats. The Community Spotlight on KUAF is heard weekday mornings here on Ozarks at Large, and you can find extended segments at our website, KUAF.com. Just look to the right of the page. I'm Pete Hartman. You can email me, that's Pete at KUAF.com. And remember, your voice matters. Monday on Ozarks at Large, a conversation with writer, humorist, and public radio commentator David Sedaris. This before he's on stage Tuesday night at the Walnut Center. Among other things, he'll talk about refining his work. So many the essays in that book, I read them all on stage, like, I don't know, 30 times minimum. And and so I, you know, I, I still do that now. I get up on stage, I read something new, I take it back to my hotel room, I rewrite it, I read it, I rewrite it. And then when I can't think of any other way to fix it, I give it to my editor, and then she comes back with her notes. And then if it's in The New Yorker, then that editor comes back with her notes. David Sedaris and much more, Monday at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF and on the Ozarks at Large podcast. Walmart Amp presents Boy George and Culture Club, headlining the Letting It Go show with special guests Howard Jones in Berlin, August 14th. 80s music, dancing, and fashion will take center stage this summer with chart toppers including Do You Really Want to Hurt Me, Take My Breath Away, and Karma Chameleon. Tickets go on sale this Friday, April 21st at 10 a.m. at amptickets.com. Opera in the Ozarks kicks off its Spring Alumni Recital Concert Series at Thaden School in Bentonville Sunday, April 23rd with an afternoon of arias and art songs featuring internationally recognized soprano Katrina Thurman and baritone Pal Brum, accompanied by pianist Hyun Kim. Tickets available at opera.org. Reporting from outside of the United States is a challenge for a whole host of reasons. One of those reasons is often a language barrier, leading to miscommunications and phrases that don't translate well. Gregory Warner has been an international correspondent and reporter for NPR for many years and is the host of the podcast Rough Translation since its inception in 2017. I recently spoke to Gregory, and he says there's a couple different origin stories for the podcast. One is that I had been a foreign correspondent or an international correspondent for a number of years, and um, in all those places, you know, whether it was Rwanda, Ethiopia, Afghanistan, Ukraine, I had seen the pace of modernization and internet culture really change uh, things. I mean, someone once told to me, they said, you know, a 19-year-old Kenyan has more in common with a 19-year-old American than a 42-year-old Kenyan. And it was a 
it was a it was it was the way in which we we're all sort of part wherever we live part of an internet culture as well and so even though it seemed that people were all on Facebook at the time or or all able to communicate with a single click at that it almost highlighted the way in which it was was very difficult to understand each other and the way we were actually not understand even if we could translate the words not really understanding where people were coming from i had a particular experience of this in ethiopia with secretary of state then secretary of state john kerry he was over in ethiopia and he had he had, he was giving a press conference and he kind of went off script and instead of just asking the the assembled reporters the state sponsored reporters for a question he kind of he said hey uh, you over there you can ask a question too you've been waiting and he picked on some you know he, he picked some uh, independent journalist who asked a very controversial question about some arrested journalists but he he used a phrase serious are you going to be serious and serious in in Afghanistan in Ethiopia does not mean are you very serious? Or is it opposite of funny? But it means, are you going to put money behind this? Anyway, he was not understood by John Kerry, at least at the moment. He kind of took a big risk and he was not understood by the Secretary of State that he hoped to reach. He he suffered some consequences as a result. I mean, this, this Ethiopian journalist. And so the stakes of translation and of being understood felt to me very acute. And then I did that story in two places. I did that story from that from that press conference for All Things Considered. It was like a four-minute story, ran in All Things Considered. And, uh, you know, came, went. And then I did that same story for Radiolab at a slightly longer length, maybe eight minutes, nine minutes. The Radiolab story or that episode was the most downloaded episode of that year. And the All Things Considered story, you know, it, the way news is, it came and it disappeared the next day. And so it, it also just struck me that podcasts would be a way to... Um, to really sit in stories and have them mean mean something for people that that's beyond just the news hook or the news of the day. A new season is coming out this summer. What can listeners expect to hear? This season, I'm really excited about it. It's the story is about well, as you know, in, it takes place in India, and in India, love marriage, marrying across caste, across faith is against tradition. And oftentimes, couples who fall in love across these dividing lines will be, if not persecuted by their parents, then by the community at large. And the worst of this is there's something called honor killings, where where couples who try to elope together or fall in love with each other across these lines are killed. And sadly, that's not even listed as murder in the Indian in large parts of the Indian Penal Code. So our story is about a guy whose job it is to protect these couples. He calls himself the Love Commando, and he will defend these couples. He shelters them. He gives them free food, protection, but also a kind of moral support. But then this guy is arrested, and some of the couples that whose lives he saved are actually saying, thank God he's arrested. And so then the question of the story becomes, wait a second, who was he really? What was going on? Was he the angel of protection that he presented himself to the to the public as, or was something else going on in the shelter? And you know, it's, a, it's also a very universal story because it's about getting married, choosing love against the wishes of your parents, feeling very alone, and then some of the exploitation that can happen in that alone space when you're trying to figure out your new life together. NPR recently announced cutbacks across the board, and one of the casualties of that trimming, unfortunately, was rough translation. We'll still hear the new episodes this summer, but what's next for you and what's next for the show? 
You know, that is something I'm still trying to figure out. I mean, the good thing is I'm, I'm working on the season. This is a season we've been working on for a while. So that's taking a lot of my time. I can tell you that rough translation kinds of reporting is something I did before I started the podcast and it will be something that I will continue. And one of the kind of amazing things about, I don't want to say amazing things about this period that I'm in, but the funny thing about getting fired and having your show canceled and having to be in the New York Times and even having The Onion write about it uh, <laughs> is that a lot of people write you and a lot of people sort of reach out and people who were you know, fans of the show or had a relationship with the show that as a result, I just never met. I didn't know them. I mean, it's unfortunately podcasting is so one way. And even though we're constantly asking people to write us and send us your rough translation stories. Yeah, it's not always easy to hear from people. But suddenly, if you if you need help, people say, okay, wait, uh, rough translation is something that I, I really believe in. And I, I want to help. Um, I want to help support, you know, what this is and what you guys are doing. So I don't know. The simple answer is I'm not sure what's next for me or for the show, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic and I'd, I'd love to come back to you and tell you, okay, this is it and this is what we're going to do. I will say that for listeners who are interested in what is happening next and a little bit of behind the scenes, I started a Substack, which is like an email newsletter. It's free, but it allows people to just kind of enter into this, this chat with other rough translation kind of listeners and, um, and also just follow along. So if the people who will know first what happens with uh, with me and Rough Translation before I do, I'm sorry, after I do, will be uh, subscribers to the Substack. It's around the world in 85 days.substack.com. And that the reason is because I have, when I started, I had 85 days left at NPR. Yeah. So this <laughs> is countdown or something. Gregory Warner is the host of Rough Translation. You can find Rough Translation wherever you listen to podcasts with the newest season coming this summer. In the background is Ahmed Jamal performing an original composition entitled Tranquility. And for over 40 years, that song has been the outro for my show. I'm Robert Ginsberg, host of Shades of Jazz, and on this week's edition of the program, a tribute to Ahmed Jamal. He passed away this last Sunday at the age of 92. Join me as we take a deep dive into the art and music of Ahmed Jamal on Shades of Jazz. Shades of Jazz tonight at 10 on 91.3 KUAF. Then tomorrow from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF 3 on your digital radio at KUAF.com through the KUAF app for iPhone and by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF 3. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Neocosca Creek. (laughs) Yes. Got that in one take, baby. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Neocosca runs right by my house. I thought it did. Yeah. Yeah. Over there by Root Elementary. and mm-hmm. you know. Contributors today included Michael Tilley, Becca Martin-Brown, and Pete Hartman. We also had help from the news staff at KUAR, Public Radio News for Little Rock and Central Arkansas. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2 yesterday. The uh, Rick Sotko conference room is right across from my mm-hmm. studio and office, and I saw you and Rachel Sanchez-Smith working with young journalists, talking to them about podcasts. you got more young journalists coming in today. We do, yeah. We've got a, a batch of students coming in um, today to talk about 
Um, we're we're going to be talking through. It's kind of film studies, but for podcasts. We're going to be mm. exploring some clips from some different podcasts that have got picked out, and kind of things to notice, things to think about when you listen to that. Help you, you know, be a better podcaster yourself. Mm. Speaking of podcasts and podcasters. We'll have an extended version yep. of my conversation with Gregory Warner on Sunday's edition of Weekend Ozarks at Large. Um, in that conversation, he talks about uh, an episode of Rough Translation that came out during the pandemic called Hotel Corona, which was one of my favorite episodes of any podcast I've listened to. It was really well done story, really well told. Um so you'll hear, you know, an extension of that conversation on Sunday. And in talking to Gregory, he talked about how they actually have a Spotify playlist of music that kind of correlates with the different stories and the different you know, elements of the international elements of Rough Translation. If you want to find it on Spotify, you can look up Travel the World with Rough Translation Find a Spotify playlist there. We'll leave you with some music from that playlist. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellum.